Good evening, guys. Welcome. If you could open a Bible to Daniel chapter 9. Uh, Daniel chapter 9 is where we're going to be uh, this evening. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the back table there, and we would love it if you grab one on your way out or maybe took that home with you and made it yours as our gift to you. Uh, we want you to do that. I'm curious, if you had the power to change one thing in your life, like you could do it, I'm curious what you would change. If you could change one thing in your life, what would you change? You could set your mind on it. It would be different tonight forever and never be changed. Maybe you're like, well, I can't control that, you know, sort of thing. So maybe rephrase the question, right? If you could ask God to change one thing in your life and he promised you that he would do it, What would you ask God to change? What would you ask God to change? See, we all walk in here tonight with unfinished business, don't we? Uh, None of us feels like we've arrived at our desired destination. Uh, It's like you and I are enduring a long layover at an airport and uh, you're, you're not only excited to get on that final flight and touch down maybe in Portland, but uh, you, you want to get home home, right? You can't wait to get home and actually lay down your bed and lay your head on your pillow, and then you think to yourself, I've arrived, right? I'm at my destination. But what, do you, what do you want to change so that you would actually begin to feel in a different way that you are laying on the pillow of your bed tonight? See, God's people here in our passage had been conquered in chapter 1 by Babylon. We'd seen that. Uh, They'd endured exile in Babylon for 70 years. That time was coming to a close. And if you ask them what's the one thing they wanted changed, they would say, I want to be home. I want to be in Jerusalem. But what we see in this beautiful, heart-wrenching prayer of Daniel is that God's people don't just need to return to their land. They need to return to their God. They don't just need to return to their land. They need to return to their God. And and so I kind of wonder how many of us, when I asked that question moments ago, thought, well, what I would change is me. I would change, I would have me changed. I was thinking about this. There's probably two types of people in here tonight, and I'm one of them, right? Maybe you're in here tonight and you're thinking, well, I don't need to change. Maybe a little, but not, that's, not the, that's not the problem. Right? I need my circumstances to change. Right? And there's others maybe who think, yeah, I need to change. That's so much is clear to me, but you know what? I will never change. I will never change. What we're seeing in our passage tonight through this prayer, you guys, it should be on the screen for you, is this. We see that our greatest need is to return to God. Our greatest need in life is to return to God. We're going to see that in verses 1 through 19. And the second thing that we see in our passage tonight is that God has made that return possible through the cross. We see that in verses 20 through 27. So our greatest need is to return to God. So in other words, we need to change. And secondly, God has made that return possible through the cross. In other words, change is promised to those who throw themselves on the mercy of God. 
Right, so let's, let's look at verses 1 through 19 first and, and see how we're led to believe that our greatest need is to return to God. Verse 1 reads this, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules, We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice, and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us. Because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O Lord God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to the pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Do not delay. For your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. So when is this prayer happening? Right? 
uh, we're told here right in verse 1, it's the first year of Darius, right? He's this meat. So basically what we're learning right here out of the gate is that Daniel is praying this prayer right after chapter 5 when Belshazzar had that writing on the wall. And just like that, overnight, everything changed. He had lived in Babylon for a lot of years. He had served alongside Nebuchadnezzar and even Belshazzar. And all of a sudden, overnight, this writing on the wall happens and this dramatic, ground-shifting change. Daniel, who went into Babylon in his teenage years, is now in his 80s, and he's had this dramatic shift. All this change happened, and what does he do? Well, you're told that in the midst of this dramatic change, he reaches for his Bible. That's what he does. And he's reading Jeremiah. And that reading of Jeremiah, we're told, has stirred him up to pray. It's in reading the Bible that he begins to pray. What do you think he's reading? Well, most people think he's reading Jeremiah 25. that says, This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, which Belshazzar, that just happened, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. Or maybe he's reading Jeremiah 29, which, which everybody loves this one, right? I mean, we have this on coffee cups and all this kind of stuff. Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So think about it, right? Daniel's reading Jeremiah. His affections must be on the rise. He's considering these verses which are signaling the, the nearness of the end of them being in exile. What they've probably wanted to see change in their life is about to take place. He's hearing the promises of God that after 70 years, he's going to bring them home finally. So Daniel believes that whatever God promises, God is going to fulfill. He's basically like a man with a check from heaven, right? Remember checkbooks, right? Maybe some of you still use them. I don't know. I haven't used them very much lately, but remember when someone would write you a check, that check was as good as the person who gave it to you, right? So in a way, if someone wrote you a check for 25 bucks, you'd say, I have 25 bucks, but you don't have 25 bucks until you cash it in, right? I mean, know this idea. So basically, he's like, there's this promise from God. It's almost like the idea of a check. And he's like, God's about to cash this thing in. He's going to fulfill his promises. So what drives Daniel to pray is God's promises, he knows God is good for his word. This Bible drives him to prayer. Or you could, if you don't know what a checkbook is, right? Think about it this way. Like, it's like God's promises are the hard side of Velcro. And our prayers are the soft, fuzzy part. So as we read God's promises, our prayers are meant to cling to those promises, right? That's what our prayers are to do. As we read the Bible, it should stir us up to go, God's promised me this. I'm going to pray for that right? God's promises, they do not create passivity in our lives. They're not intended for us to sit back and go, well, it's going to happen, whatever, you know, that kind of thing. No, it, they create a prayerful energy. Michael Reeves wrote a really, really small book called Enjoy Your Prayer Life. It's wonderful. 
And in it, he talks about one of the reasons why we struggle so much with prayer is we think about it as this activity to do. It's just an activity. He goes, that makes it boring. He says, instead, focus on the one to whom you're praying, reminding yourself of who it is that you're, you're coming before. That's what Daniel's doing here. Or it's like in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when Lucy and all of her siblings, they pass through this amazing wardrobe into Narnia. Right? The wardrobe is awesome, but it's not the thing. Right? The, the, the point of the wardrobe is to actually get into Narnia. Hopefully, it'd be a really boring book if the kids just go, wow, this is such an amazing wardrobe. Is this mahogany or what kind of animal is this fur coat? You know, and all that kind of stuff. You'd be like, well, you're, just keep going, right? You're going to get to the thing that you're meant to go to. That's the way it is with prayer and God. We are intended to focus on God and His promises, not just the act itself. We're, we're, to, we're meant to encounter the character of God, and that's what Daniel's doing here. He's fixated on the character of God. He knows who God is. He's not hanging out in the wardrobe. He's in Narnia, right? Look what tumbles out of Daniel that's flooding his heart. It's the character of God. Look at verse 4. O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Verse 7, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. You're righteous. Verse 9, right? To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness. Look at verse 14. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done. Verse 15, you've delivered us with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself. He pleads to God in verse 18. Why? Because God is a merciful God. God, you are the merciful, righteous, covenant-keeping, forgiving, rescuing God. The character of God is just tethered into his heart and mind. Can you see the starting point of prayer? It begins with worship. He's in the Word, and God's character just floods over him like, this is who I'm talking to. Then notice when he actually begins to ask God for something, it doesn't even begin until verse 16, but he still grounds it in the character of God. O Lord, according to your righteousness, your anger, your wrath, uh, turn away from your city, your holy hill, right? Your people, verse 16, I am your servant, verse 17. Do this for your own sake. Make your face shine upon your sanctuary. Right? Do all this because we're called by your name. Do this because of your great mercy. Delay not for your own sake because of your city and your people. You're called by your name. Right? Daniel's teaching us that God's reputation should be the driving concern of our prayers. Our petitions, what we're asking God for, should be sprinkled with with pleading for his honor. What what honor would it bring to you, God, if my marriage was restored? I want want you to receive honor, Lord, if so-and-so would finally come back to you. Lord, as this person walks through this horrible suffering in their life, for your honor's sake, Lord, would you cause them just to grow stronger and sweeter in their faith? Guys, you won't actually see your needs and what they really are until you see God's greatness. And until you see God's greatness, 
you and I will often have a wrong assessment of our needs. Because in seeing God, Daniel sees the need of his people, and it's not just to return to their land, it's to return to their God. And look at what flows out of his thoughts then as he centers his thoughts on God, what flows out of him? Confession. What does he say in verse 5? We have sinned and done wrong, acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. Verse 7, we have acted treacherously. Verse 8, we have sinned against you. Verse 9, we have rebelled against him. Verse 11, we have sinned against him. Verse 13, we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God. Verse 15, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. How did they end up there? How how do you and I end up in our sin? Well, he tells you it's a lack of listening. It's a lack of listening. Look at verse 6. We have not listened to your prophets. Verse 10, we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord. Verse 11, we've refused to obey your voice. Verse 14, we have not obeyed his voice. Guys, God is a speaking God. He's speaking to us right now. The question then remains, are we listening? So they haven't listened. They've sinned against God. They've walked away from him. What has all that brought about? What tells you in verse 7? What does he say? To us belongs open shame. Verse 8, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame. This isn't hidden shame. It's not the sense that I have this shame, but no one knows about it. No, it's, it's exposed, right? It's, it's open shame. And so what concerns Daniel is not so much the return to the land as it is the people who must return. What, what good will it do to be back in Jerusalem if the people haven't returned to their God? If, if, what good will it do to have a people back in the land with still no sense of their sin and no sense of how they've wronged God and tried to live apart from him? So look at what comes out of Daniel. There's no evasion here. He's totally willing to confess He's totally willing to agree with God, basically. That's what confession is. It's to agree with God about what he's done wrong. And this is amazing because Daniel is kind of one of the only people in the Bible who doesn't have a checkered past, right? The Bible's really interesting because it often talks about the heroes of the faith, right? In Judaism and in Christianity, and you see their bright spots and you always see their flaws, It's really interesting, but Daniel is kind of one of those few people, you don't have to whitewash his story. He's just this exemplary figure, yet here he's praying, and what is he doing? He's not standing over here with God like, yeah, look at these people. Look what they did. They've sinned. Yeah, they haven't listened to you, but I've listened to you. No, he's sitting here going, no, we've not listened to you, God. We've sinned against you. He's identifying himself with his people, confessing on their behalf, agreeing with God about what they've done. This is so essential in basically every relationship. This is how our relationships with people break down, isn't it? It's someone's wronged you, and if you say to them, hey, you've done this thing that's wrong, they're like, well, I haven't done that. Or maybe their response is, well, you did that. 
But relationships begin to form and reconcile when the person goes, yeah, you're right. I did that. I agree. I confess. That's on me. That was wrong. I thought that's what Daniel's doing here. And this is exactly what should distinguish Christians from the world. It's not that we are less sinful than other people in this world. And it's not that we don't have shame. But that the grace of God, by the grace of God, we have learned to see our sinfulness for what it is, and we are people who confess sin. I mean, think about the church is like one of the only communities in this world that habitually seeks to confess sin, to say, I'm wrong, I, I messed up, please forgive me. And where the confession of sin dies out and the finger pointing begins, the church is no longer being the church because the church is a people who says, I agree with you, God. We've screwed up. We've screwed up. I mean, oftentimes, I think the reason why we live in this illusion, right, where we can't honestly say to God, yes, this is me, I've sinned, I've acted wickedly, until we've done that, we, we live in this illusion, and the, oftentimes the reason we live in this illusion is out of this self-protection. Maybe for many, many years we've carried around this shame in our lives, and we've tried to cover it up so that we won't have it exposed. So we carry around shame, and it's, it's not open shame, it's, it's hidden shame. And the way we tend to deal with hidden shame is by pointing our fingers at other people, by feeling superior to other people. It's by putting others down and thinking that we are better than others. But it's just an illusion. We all have it. I have it. We all have this hidden shame. It's said that the author Mark Twain once sent 12 of his friends a telegram He didn't sign his name to it. All he wrote is, flee at once, all is discovered. And all 12 people left town immediately. Right? We understand that, don't we? I mean, if if you were given that, hopefully not a telegram tonight, you'd be like, what is this? Right? I don't know what a telegram is. Someone texted you, maybe. Flee at once, all is discovered. And you're like, whose number is this? What would come to your mind? You're like, oh no. Someone knows about that. It's, it's the hidden shame, but here it's, it's open, right? It's open. Open shame. That we all have shame. And it's a result of us not agreeing with God and having that dealt with. And that's the good news in God's answer tonight because God isn't just bringing his people home to Jerusalem, but he's bringing them home to him. God has promised. He has made the return to him possible through the cross. And that's what we begin to see here in verses 20 down to 27. What does it say? While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, so an angel, whom I'd seen the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight 
at the time of the evening sacrifice, which is fascinating because no one had been making sacrifices for a long time. I mean, that's what you did in Jerusalem, but he's not even there. So he's still on Israelite time, even though he's in Babylon. Interesting. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Now, therefore... Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he's, he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. We've seen this before with apocalyptic literature. It's, it's almost like Daniel has been hoping and reading Jeremiah and going, hey, we're going to go back to Jerusalem. And so it's like he's out in the Cascades looking at this mountain in front of him going, I get to the top of that mountain, we're home to Jerusalem. We fulfilled what Jeremiah has been speaking about. And so he climbs the mountain. They get back to the land. But this passage is showing Daniel, this, this uh, 70 weeks prophecy is showing Daniel that he basically gets to the top of the mountain. They're back in Jerusalem and he's like, oh man, this is not just one mountain. This is an entire mountain range. And he begins to see God's redemptive plan is so much bigger. Yes, they're going to get home, but that's not their salvation. That's not their salvation. And this is granted a very confusing prophecy. Almost every commentator I read said, these are legitimately the hardest verses in the Bible. So I don't know why I didn't schedule Mike to preach this week. I don't know what was my problem. But um, but no, I I read Alistair Begg said this, and I thought I'd read it for you because I resonated with it. He says, He said this before he preached this passage. He says, In what follows, I reserve the right to change my mind later this evening and as often as necessary for the rest of my life until I finally settle the matter. What I'm about to now unfold for you will annoy some, disappoint others, confuse many, and perhaps encourage a few. And that really encouraged me. So uh, resonated those words. But Because this is true, I want to try and be as concise as possible and zero in on where there's actual clarity in our passage. So let's look at verse 24 first. We see this 70 weeks that are decreed about these people in the holy city. The the 70 weeks is literally 70 sevens. And while many people, good God-fearing people, interpret this to be a literal 490 years, I'll just be honest, I'm not really convinced. Uh, I, I take my cue from Jesus. So in Matthew 18, you have this famous story where Peter goes, uh, how often do I have to forgive this person? 
And he thinks he's being really generous. He goes, as many as seven times? And Jesus goes, no, no, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. L- the literal rendering in what Jesus says is 70 times seven. So do you think Jesus is saying to Peter, hey, just tally it up, 490 is the max, right? You think that's what he's saying? Well, not at all. We don't interpret it that way. He's basically saying to Peter, keep forgiving. And, and, and furthermore, almost always in Scripture, the number seven is symbolic. It's often a representation of perfection or God's perfection. Uh, one commentator noted that behind all the biblical uses of seven lie the seven days of creation. So he says, thus the return from exile is not simply a new exodus, but a new creation, and thus foreshadows the end time. And that's what's happening here. Uh, Think back to Daniel 4, when Mike preached in Daniel 4, the text told us that Nebuchadnezzar was humbled for seven periods of time. Well, how long is that? It just means God's perfect timing is what it means. That's what we see here in Daniel chapter 9, 77. Each one of these time periods will be in God's perfect timing. Gabriel's giving Daniel a prophecy about God's perfect plan and God's perfect timing. So what are the six things that verse 24 tells you God is going to bring about in his perfect redemption? Number one, he says, transgression will be finished. That's a new word to you. That just, it's kind of a word for sin. Right? Sins will be brought to an end. Reconciliation, number three, will be made for iniquity. Number four, everlasting righteousness will be established. Five, vision and prophecy will be sealed. Six, the most holy will be anointed. So let's look at that list for a second. Notice the finality of that list. Right? It's, it's, these things will be brought to an end. I mean, everlasting righteousness means righteousness that never ends. Right? I mean, it's finality. And so for us as Christians, right, this is instinctive for us to even read this and just see Jesus in verse 24, isn't it? I thought I'd just read to you what Sinclair Ferguson wrote, and he did such a good job here. He says, Jesus came to die for our sins, that through him we might die to sin and be raised to a new life of righteousness. It is because these things have been accomplished by him that grace reigns through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's dealing with the first three things, right? And he says Christ does more than this. He came to seal up vision and prophecy. He's God's last word. That's what we read as we started our worship service tonight. In him, all the promises of God receive their yes and amen. In him alone is found the vision of God and his purpose. In him, prophecy and prophet are united. How do the words anoint the most holy find fulfillment? The most holy is a reference to the holy of holies, the tabernacle and all the furniture of which were consecrated to God by careful ritual. Jesus came to fulfill all that the holy of holies represented. Jesus himself was and is the most holy. Again, this is finality kind of stuff here in verse 24. God's answer to Daniel's prayer is basically saying to Daniel, getting back to the land is not the redemption I'm looking for for you. It's not the redemption I'm bringing about. You think you need that, but you need something else, and I will provide it for you. Verse 25, we see this seven weeks, the seven sevens again. And this is, I think, referring to this return, this time period of returning to exile, and then up until the time that the anointed one, Jesus, comes. 
So first seven sevens and then 62 sevens after that, okay? But then what happens when Jesus arrives? Look at verse 26. After the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. That's a different prince than the prince we've already seen. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war, desolations are decreed. This here is talking about, I think, this prince who will come and destroy the city, basically, is referenced here to Satan and his people, right? And so we've noticed this from the moment that the Genesis 3 took place. We saw there would be a seed from a woman and a seed from the serpent, and there would be this eternal conflict until the end. It's referring to these things. But what happens here to this anointed one when he arrives? This is so clearly a reference to Jesus. Because what does it say? An anointed one will be cut off. And think of Isaiah. When it talks about this anointed servant who's going to come. And it says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? That's exile language. Stricken for the transgression of my people. As this prophecy in Daniel and in Isaiah is fulfilled through Jesus on the cross. This is why we sing how great the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away and wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Jesus was spoken of as cutting, being cut off for our sin. So our return to God is made possible through the cross. It it is good news that our Savior was cut off. It's only through that work that ultimately he would crush the serpent's head. Through death, he would bring victory. Through being cut off, he'd bring new life. He'd bring a new covenant. Gabriel wants Daniel to know that there's going to be this return of Jerusalem. That's about to happen. But the war... It's going to rage on until the end. Right? This story of redemption won't be completed with the return from exile. Israel doesn't just need their address to change. Right? They, need, they don't just need their circumstances to change. They need to change. They don't just need to return to their land. They need to return to their God. And God is promising change to all those who cast themselves on his mercy. And then if you get down to verse 27, he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week and for half the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Uh, The key question here is who is he? Remember when Christ was cut off, what did he do? He brought in a new everlasting covenant. What did the new covenant accomplish? When Jesus was on the cross, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. The temple and its sacrifices became obsolete. As Jesus then cries out on the cross, it is finished. There was no more need for temple sacrifice because he had paid for the sins of his people. This is why Hebrews 10 says what? This is the new covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, 
there is no longer any offering for sin. So spiritually, Jesus destroys the need for the temple on the cross. Physically, we see there at the end of verse 27, Titus the Roman would destroy the temple in AD 70. So Gabriel's prophecy is fulfilled. So God makes your return in these verses. It's holding up to you. God makes your return final through the cross. Not just possible, but for those who cast themselves on the mercy of God, he makes it ultimate and final. Why would God do all this? Why would he do this for you and me? Well, we missed it, but, but up in verse 23, why does he say this to Daniel? It says, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you. For you are greatly loved. Isn't that amazing? Before Daniel is given this really confusing prophecy, God comes to him through an angel. says, hey, I'm going to explain that to you in just a second, but hey, I want to assure you, you are greatly loved. And how amazing is that? I mean, this word translated here occurs only nine times in the Old Testament, and it means something like preciousness. You are precious to God. You are deeply loved. I mean, could you imagine tonight thinking of your private shame, going before God, praying and pleading for mercy, and an angel showing up to you and saying, hey, Mark, you are greatly loved. Carol, God has a word for me. He wants to tell you, you are greatly loved. Hey, Anthony, before I get to that answer, God wants to tell you that you are greatly loved. Fill in the blank, right? Think about that. Ange, I know I heard God heard your prayer. First of all, God wants to assure you, you are greatly loved. Butch, God wants you to know, you're greatly loved. In 1751, uh, there was a guy named Philip who was near the end of his life in ministry. He was only 49 years old and he was dying from tuberculosis. And the, the doctor told him, hey, before you die, it'd probably be good for you to move to a warm climate. So he, he lived in England. He was set to move with his wife to Lisbon. And bef- on their journey, they stopped in Bath. It's not a real Bath city, right? To see their friend and stay with their friend, Selena. And on the morning that he was set to leave, Selena comes into his room unexpectedly and she catches Philip with his Bible open, just weeping. And she goes, Philip, you're crying. And he said, I am weeping, but they are tears of comfort and joy. Do you want to know what he's reading? Daniel 9, 23. He sensed that the assurance given to Daniel belonged to him as well in, in that hour 
Guys, do you see our problem? Isn't our address and unwanted circumstances being changed? Our problem is that we too often don't listen to God. We go our own way. We carry around this hidden shame that is really open shame to God. You may then begin to think, well, if God knows of my shame, well, he can't love me. I'll never change. And look here, God has promised to bring it about. He's promised it through the cross. And how does he deal with your shame? It's through Jesus, the Son of God, bearing your shame openly on the cross. That's why Romans says, do you doubt God loves you? God has demonstrated his love for you. And that while you weren't even turning to God and praying for mercy, Christ died for you. Right? You are loved. Return to me. If you think you don't need to change and it's just your circumstances, you miss what God is not only doing in your life, but what he's doing in the world. This is the ends that he has fixed. And if you think, I know my shame, I'll never change. We need to fi- you need to fix your attention on the character and the actions of God. He is a merciful God. He's a covenant-keeping God. He's a forgiving God. Daniel grounds himself there. All you have to do is throw yourself on the mercy of God. I mean, how else is shame removed from our life? It's when it actually gets into the open and the person goes, yeah, I know, I forgive you. And you receive that warm acceptance. That's how our shame is is dealt with. All you have to do is come clean. You have to stop pointing the finger and you have to get on your knees. And when you do, when you actually listen and you hear, fill in the blank, you are greatly loved. That's when revival starts. This is how it always starts. You want to see God move in our church and in our city. It begins when we all return to God. And we see that as the thing that we most need. It starts with us pointing the finger at ourselves and agreeing with God, saying, yeah, it's true. It starts when I see that that I don't just need my surroundings to change. I need to come home to my God. He is the pillow that I'm supposed to lay my head on. Guys, in Christ, you are loved. There's nothing you could do to make God love you more if you've received what he's done for you. There is nothing that you can do to make him love you less. And you might be going, well, what if I gave away all my money? Wouldn't he just love me a little bit more? And God would go, nope, can't do it, right? Well, what if you went and sold everything and you became a foreign missionary? You're like, God would have to love me more for that, right? No, he couldn't, he couldn't do it, right? What if you finally begin to treat your spouse with grace and respect? He wouldn't love you more. What if you finally started taking out the trash? She would love you more, right? But God wouldn't love you more, Right? What, what if you went an entire week without a single lustful thought? Or better yet, you didn't sin at all. Never a moment of pride, never a tinge of anger that was unrighteous. Right? Wouldn't he love you a little bit more next Sunday? Can't happen. God's love and acceptance of you is based on the fact that Christ 
went a lifetime without sinning. Even in the slightest way, yet he came over to this side and says, God, he identified himself with sinful people, yet he was cut off in ultimate exile, and in so doing, verse 24 comes true. He puts an end to sin. He atones. He finishes the transgression. And what is brought about? Everlasting righteousness. Guys, throw yourself on the mercy of God and hear of his love. He can't love you more than he does right now, not just because Daniel was better than you, though he probably was. Not just because Philip is somehow better than you, but because Jesus is the purest and best one, and yet he went to the cross for you. As there is a day coming that God has promised where all that we will know is light, no more pain, no more brokenness from sin, no more need for confession. And we are waiting for that day. That is what God is after. That is what he has promised. And so if that is the end that I'm headed towards, that I live life on my knees, giving our lives then to the means for that end, knowing that one day the clock will strike. And if God is the one that you are wanting to return to your whole life, from your exile here on earth, well, it's going to be a really good day. So if you could change one thing, change one thing, what would it be? Father, I do come to you tonight. We come to you in your strong name. God, you are merciful. You are the covenant-making and keeping God. You are never unfaithful. You are a God of forgiveness. You are a God who acts for your own sake and your own name, and we are so thankful for that. God, we confess to you that we have longed to return to other things and we've missed it. God, we confess to you how we've not listened to you. We haven't sought to hear your voice and follow you no matter the cost in our own lives. Lord, I pray that you would just speak to us tonight that for those who are feeling like there's no way that you, the God of the universe, could love them, I pray that you would Help them to believe that and see that by looking at Jesus on the cross. Lord, I pray for those who think their life doesn't really need to change. I pray that you would lovingly just show them, Lord, that they were made for you. How we want to see you move in our lives. We want to see you move in our church. We want to see you move in our city, in our nation, in this whole world. And so we cling to your promises tonight, Lord. You say your word does not return void. It accomplishes its purposes. You say your glory will cover the earth as the water covers the sea. So God, our hearts beat for that. And if they're not tonight, would you bring us home so that they would believe those things? pretty things in Christ's name. Amen.